Now's the time to have the bull at your back with Merrill. Learn more at MerrillLynch.com bullish. Investing involves risk. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and welcome to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. There's a lot of uncertainty in the economy right now, and in this episode, we hear from Asfine Beschloss. She is founder and CEO of Rock Creek about what's happening in the economy and what it means for investors. As she thinks, for one thing, that we're not headed for a disaster, and she thinks the U.S. economy can come out relatively unscathed. And here's David Rubenstein now with Beschloss with her take on what's happening and also on what to expect with the economy and on investing in energy, plus her thoughts on being female in the investment industry. Let's listen in. The United States, as we talk today, is not in a recession. Some people fear a recession. Interest rates have been going up steadily for the last year or so. As we talk today, the Fed has just decided not to increase for the most recent uh, FOMC meeting, but it said it might increase in the future. Are you worried that we're going to go into a recession in the next year or so in the United States? I think it's going to be probably a softer landing um, in that camp. And um, the Fed, in its uh, statement, while it did not increase rates, was relatively hawkish because they added the potential of uh, having one more 50 basis point increase later this year. But the markets have not quite bought into that. So as you look at high inflation that we've had and now high interest rates, do you change your investment approach? And how have you changed your investment approach with respect to these factors? Um, so David, um, obviously we're, going, we're coming off a period of uh, very low interest rates, almost zero cost of capital, of course, for the last um, almost uh, seven, eight years. But before that also, we were in a low interest rate regime. Things are changing. 5% um, for treasury bills, three months and six months and one year treasury bills is quite a high rate. But you have to see that there is a regime change in interest rates, which means that the things that worked in the last 10 years are not going to work in the next 10 years. So your investors, your clients are institutional investors yes. and maybe some high net worth, family office and so forth. What kind of rate of return are you trying to get for your investors? I think um, we have um, different things that we're doing. We have two businesses. One is our private funds that are investing in energy transformation. And those will be like a growth equity type of investment in um, clean energy or in uh, reducing water use, um, things like that. And those would be like any other growth equity, you know, private investment, sort of 20% plus. And so investors who invest in that, that's what the expectation is. Um, for our investors who are investing in what we call multi-asset class or outsourced chief investment officer services, those are more like, let's take a foundation. Um, it will be um, basically a 70-30 market, um, you know, 70% equity, 30% bonds, and then making sure that, uh, that uh, that goal is met, plus the fact that we have inflation, they can still spend 5% of their endowment. So that generally ends up being something closer to 8, 8%. Let's talk about your background. As I said, I think you've started the largest woman-owned investment firm in the United States, but it's clearly the largest woman-owned immigrant uh, <laughs> firm started by uh, a woman. So uh, let's talk about your background. Where, where, where were you born? I was born in Iran, in, uh, I should say, pre-revolutionary Iran. 
Okay. There, it was under a different uh, The Shah uh, of Iran was uh, in control then? That's right. Okay, so when, when did you get out of Iran? Did you have to leave because of the Ayatollah coming in? I was very fortunate. I went to the international school in Tehran, and then when I was 15 or 16, I decided to uh, come to the United States as an exchange student. There was a program called the American Field Service. I applied, I got in, I came here uh, and went to Concord, Massachusetts. So your father was a prominent academic, is that right? Yes. And what position did he rise up to? Um, he was uh, chancellor of the oldest, largest university in Iran, responsible for all uh, the teacher training in Iran. And he was also an education innovator. Um, so he was a big influence, as was my mother. She taught me how not to cook so that I could do other things. And you got your doctorate in what area? So I did not finish the doctorate because the revolution happened. So that is unfinished business. I finished my master's and, um, and as it happened, um, one of my professors at Oxford started the Oxford Energy Institute while I was at Oxford. He was a big influence in the sense that he said, well, if you go back to Iran or if you work on energy in, the, in, in Europe or in the United States, you're a woman. And this is sort of a man's world. Maybe you should look at what's more innovative. Why don't you think about natural gas? It's also cleaner. And that kind of stuck in the back of my head and, um, and was a big influence, I should say, throughout my whole career. All right, so in Oxford, you get your degree at Oxford, and then you, do you join the World Bank then? Uh, from Oxford, I um, uh, got an offer to go to um, Morgan Guarantee, which is now JP Morgan. And how long did you stay at uh, Morgan uh, Guarantee? Then? I was there about three, four years, and then applied to the World Bank, because I realized I, my passion was economic development and doing something that had some social impact and while, you know, being in finance or economics and that the World Bank would be a good place. So I applied to the Young Professional Program and, uh, and was lucky to get in and went to the World right, Bank. So you moved to Washington to work yes. in the World Bank. Yes. And then you rose up to become the Treasurer and Chief Investment Officer of the World Bank. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So how much money does World Bank have to manage them? I mean, is that, that's a lot of money, right? Well, the balance sheet when I was treasurer was um, like 200, uh, in excess of 200 billion. The assets were close to 110, and we had also huge amounts of derivatives that we managed. When I came to the World Bank, um, I decided to go to the energy department, and um, my boss um, happened to be a woman by coincidence, the fastest risen woman at the bank at the time. And um, I told her my um, work at Oxford had included looking at natural gas. And I said, there's so much uh, coal getting used in India, in China, in uh, a lot of these uh, emerging economies, and we should do something about it. And she said, well, what can you do about it? I said, well, why don't you move them to investing more in natural gas? And she said, go do it. And we did billions and billions of investments in natural gas, moving away from coal, combined cycle power, transmission, all over emerging um, economies. And then what year did you leave the World Bank? I left the World Bank in 2000, around 2001, and close to 2000, yeah, 2001 um, to okay, go to Okay, so I should disclose that I recruited you to Carlisle yes. and wanted you to build out a fund of funds business. Yes. And you began to build it out, and ultimately yes. you took uh, control of it and ultimately uh, built it as an independent company, which today you, you lead. Um, today, how, how much money does the firm manage? Uh, close to 17 billion. 
Now, do you invest in young entrepreneurs or people like that? Have you found any superstars uh, early on that you can talk about? One of the things that we have always uh, invested in is uh, innovation in general. We've invested with one of the largest accelerators in the country. And, um, and we were very fortunate to, through that, get uh, invested with, uh, with, uh, in OpenAI, for example, in 2015. Um, on, in the early days and meeting people that you know well, like Sam Altman or others who were early in, uh, in that journey uh, was really, really interesting. So let me ask you, um, is it harder to build a firm then or today if you're a woman or if you're an immigrant or, or women, woman and an immigrant? Which was the more complicated factor, if any? You know, it's interesting, David. I think being a woman is still very hard. You still see uh, mostly men? It's mostly men. And that has been something consistent in my career, whether it was energy, whether it was finance today. And doing a lot of work in um, clean energy and renewable energy right now, a lot of the companies are also um, ran by men. And it's not, so, so the evolution has been slower than you would expect. You see many more immigrants, both men and women, at the helm of many companies. In your firm, how many uh, employees do you have? Close to about 100. And of those, how many are female? close to half, and uh, the women are across the firm. They are in very senior positions in uh, heading investment area, as well as other areas in the firm. The phrase energy transition is commonly used today. Uh, what do we mean by energy transition, and how realistic is it that there's going to be an energy transition over the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, where carbon is going to be much less than it is today? It's happening as we're speaking. So um, the cost of solar and wind has gone down hugely. So the problems in terms of moving is not the economics because the economics of solar and wind has changed a lot compared to 20 years ago when I started, or 25 years ago when I started working on this stuff. Um, what also has changed is new innovations coming into the market, all the research that's going into hydrogen or other fission or other kinds of fuels. That's the future beyond that. However, it is a transition. We all are using oil and gas in our lives. The problems that you have are not the technological problems, are not the financial problems. It's really getting the grid and getting either utilities or the public sector or the government to come in and spend some of the money of the IRA a little faster to, to build out the grid. So energy transformation is happening right now. It's just the speed could be much, much faster. And you have been listening to Asfane Beschloss, founder and CEO of Rock Creek on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. And coming up, we'll hear more from Asfane Beschloss with David on energy and on the environment. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and this is Bloomberg. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and you are listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. And in this episode, we're hearing from Asfane Beschloss, founder and CEO of Rock Creek. She's a longtime investor in the energy market, and she's also focusing on energy markets as we transition away from fossil fuels. Energy investors, of course, watching what happens as the effort to fight climate change ramps up, including coming global meetings on climate change. She's not entirely optimistic about those efforts, though. She also talks about her nonprofit efforts and how involved she is on that front. And here's David Rubenstein with Beschloss now on that coming meeting and efforts to fight global warming. Let's listen in. Now, as we talk in the fall of this year, yes. there'll be a so-called COP28 meeting yes. in Abu Dhabi. Yes. 
Um, do you really think that there's going to be enough progress in the COP meetings so that we're going to see the temperature of the earth go down by the, the goal that they have? I am not as positive about COP28 or, frankly, the current structure of these COP meetings because there is generally gridlock in most of them. And the promises that are made, for example, several COPs ago, a promise was made that $100 billion would get spent to, in emerging markets for this energy transformation. Not, um, very little of that has come. So a lot of promises get made. There are great speeches made, but very little follow-up actually happens. So right now, uh, I think it's fair to say there's a lot of interest in impact investing, yes. uh, making a difference, not only getting a good rate of return, but doing something socially good. You've been in a, uh, a big advocate of this for a long time. When did you realize that you could make investments that had good social purpose as well as good, good rates of return? Was that always part of your background or your focus? I think growing up and then when I was uh, studying economics at Oxford, I think I had some influences in terms of some of the professors I worked with. And they were talking about the fact that you could be having more stakeholders. That's not the word they used, but the fact that you could have more stakeholders benefit from the growth of a company or growth in the economy was starting about when I was starting uh, my economic studies. The conventional wisdom has always been that an investor should try to maximize returns and you yes. do that by not excluding any potential investment. Absolutely. And so you don't worry about social impact. Your view and the view of many others now is that you can do both. You can get a good rate of return and maybe even a better rate of return if you worry about social impact. Is that fair? What the experience of insurance companies, for example, have shown us is really for all investors. A lot of the things that we're calling social impacts, I would put that aside for a second, but let's say just sticking to climate or um, environment, there are real risks that are affecting us every day. In New York, we could not breathe. In Washington, we could not breathe just because of the wildfires in Canada. Uh, so the point is we're all interconnected. The climate is one thing that connects everybody across the globe. And if we don't do something about it, it brings down the value of all companies. So how could you be investing in a company without looking at that risk, just like you're looking at any other risk? So when you make an investment or your mm -hmm. organization makes an investment, you're always taking into account the impact of climate. Is that yes. right? And you presumably are going to get a good rate of return because the world is moving in that direction of recognizing that climate impact is an important part of society and the economy, right? Absolutely. I, at my age, I don't know that there's enough time left in my life that I'm going to see a lot of progress in decarbonizing the atmosphere. But why uh, do you think uh, it's taken so long for people around the world to actually recognize that carbon is changing the earth, uh, climate, and so many other things? And do you think anything in my lifetime is likely to happen so that the climate change problem will be reduced from where it is now? I think it's moving really fast. I think, as you said, we went for a long time where pe some people were talking about it. I remember these IPCC reports uh, that came out when I was at the World Bank, some of the early ones, and it was only experts who read those. Now those are on the cover of the New York Times when they come out. Today, our children, their children, are really changing their lifestyles. Their carbon footprint is much smaller. The way they eat, the way they take jobs, the way they move, the way they choose their transport modes, or which cities they live in, and how much they consume, 
they're very much more aware of than our generation. And I think they're impacting us. So what do you find appealing about the investment world? And would you recommend to young women who want to make a mark in the world that they go into the investment world or should they do something else? I think investments is a great area for women and you can do it in different ways. You can be looking at uh, you know, running your own firm. Venture is an area which is um, smaller firms can thrive. So you can start with 50 million, you can start with 100 million um, assets or even smaller. And so it's an area for women or people of color uh, to start. And I'm seeing, I should say, women friends who are in bigger banks or in very large um, firms or including private equity or real estate or you know, sort of traditional uh, finance finding it more difficult when they get to see certain positions. So let's suppose somebody is a young woman in college or yes. um, graduated college recently or a young man, and he or she says, I want to go in the investor world. Do they need an MBA, would you say, or um, some other degree? Or what's the best training to be an investor? I think the MBA is um, a little bit uh, sort of an old degree, the way it's designed right now. I think it's. Um, might be a big investment of financial resources for not a huge addition to your income in future. I think people should see, you know, what area they're interested in. If they're interested in energy, you know, go learn about that. Maybe take some courses on that. You don't need to do a degree program anymore. You can take a few courses and things you like and, and move on quickly into that area versus spending two years and a huge amount of resources. Now you've spent a fair amount of time on nonprofit related activities yes. and you're very involved in them. If I can remember some of them, you're the chairman of the PBS Foundation. Yes. Uh, you are on the uh, board of the Rockefeller Foundation. Yes. You are on the world, board of the World Resources Institute, right. the board of the Georgetown University. You were on the board of the Institute for Advanced Study. Correct. And you are on the board of the Council on Farm Relations. So how do you have time for all those things? You know, it's really interesting because one of the things that I found uh, is really important to me is this, uh, what you talked about earlier, is making impact in your life. And when I was working at the World Bank, even if I was working on energy or finance, I felt I'm not just doing a job. We were generating growth, generating returns, but there was another impact. And I found when I moved to the private sector, I missed that other aspect. And I find working with uh, nonprofits, um, you know, I can give back in s some way um, that element that I'm very interested in. So in your job, you have to travel the world a fair bit, meeting yes. with investors, looking at opportunities. So do you ever get tired of that part of the job, traveling the world? And um, do you think any time in the near future, you're likely to be able to go back to Iran? Or you think it's unlikely that Iran is government's going to change and welcome you back uh, with open arms anytime soon. We had the biggest demonstration of women anywhere in the world in Iran in the last year. Uh, sadly, it has not led to, you know, much change. Uh, you know, uh, if anything, there's a lot of backtracking. The one thing that I'm not as positive as I used to be is really going back to Iran. So that is, you know, makes me sad. But also a lot of other countries are moving in that direction. And that is bad, not because you basically taking 50% of the population, which is women, and really putting them in a secondary position, which is a huge waste. Um, coming back to, to travel, I think I'm so used to traveling, you know, um, I think travel has not been something I mind and I 
I think I will continue doing that. And that's the only way to learn, really, to go sit with smart people and learn from them. And that was Avsvene Beschloss, founder and CEO of Rock Creek, on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. And coming up, we'll hear more from Beschloss with David on investing. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. And this is Bloomberg. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and you're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. In this episode, we're hearing from Asfane Beschloss. She's founder and CEO of Rock Creek on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, and also on where you should put your money right now. And here's David Rubenstein with Beschloss on all that. Let's listen in. Let's suppose you're on a plane and somebody realizes who you are. They say, I have $100,000. I don't know what to do with it. Uh, where should I invest it? Where should they put their money? So today, it's a easier decision than it was maybe two years ago um, because treasury bills are 5%. So I would say, you know, uh, regardless of how much risk you want to take, you have to put a portion there. Then you would have to ask really, an individual is the same, I think, as any institution. What is your time frame? Do you need to get access to this $100,000 in the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years, not until you retire. And that will determine your investment decision. So what do you think is the most common mistake investors make uh, when they they have 100,000, a million, or whatever they might have? What is the most common mistake you have observed that investors make? I would say hubris and thinking you know more than you do because every decision that you make has many, many layers. So as you're creating a portfolio, look at the risk as well, not just excited about the return. And what's the best investment advice anybody's ever given to you? Continue to learn about innovation in whatever you do because that is where it's not exciting, is that's where returns will go. Well, it's a very interesting career you've had, and I know you're not at the end of it. You might wind up as Secretary of Treasury, head of the World Bank, something like that someday. So um, if you could look back in your life, um, considering all the things you've done, what are you most proud of having achieved? My two boys. No question that that comes first. Um, and, um, and then I'm really excited about you know what I've done. And it may not have seemed at the time that there was a continuous line through it. It seemed kind of disjointed at the time. But going back, I think the sort of thread of looking at impact and looking at innovation has something that I have really been doing since I left Iran and came here as an exchange student. And that was Avsvene Beschloss, founder and CEO of Rock Creek on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. All right, let's switch gears now to banking in the global banking industry because we had a chance to hear from Christian Zeving. He's CEO of Deutsche Bank. And Bloomberg's Guy Johnson sat down with Zeving in our London office to ask him about a surprise acquisition the German lender recently made. Also, about all the economic uncertainty around us right now. Check this out. First of all, I think we we all have to admit that um, if you look what has happened over the last 12 to 15 months in in the macro um, on the geopolitical side, I think uh, economies have really shown how resilient they are. Um, Because uh, a year ago, a lot of people would have uh, uh, said there is a um, quite material recession in Europe, in Germany, uh, potentially also in the US. And if we now look back, I, I think we, we see that uh, the answer we have given um, is, is actually showing that we fared quite well uh, over the last 12 to 15 months. Now, I think the situation remains complex. Um, I'm, 
I do believe that with a very persistent inflation, interest will further go up on both sides of the, uh, of the ocean. Yep. And I also do believe, Guy, that um, the interest will then stay a little bit longer elevated than potentially a lot of people think. And that means that um, I still believe that there is a, a chance of a mild recession in the US um, at the end of uh, 23, early 24, as well as in Europe. You see that uh, Germany is uh, in a technical recession, has been in a technical recession. So um, I, don't, I don't believe that we will see a material recession, but I do think that uh, uncertainty still prevails and, and hence um, we need to watch out. And the second half of 2023 is for sure um, a half which uh, um, is still complex and is still challenging. So does that mean that the, the Q2 guidance that your CFO gave a few days back was just a, was just a blip? He was talking about uh, fixed income being down 15 to 20%. You talk about the fact that the second half is going to see significant uncertainty. That's a good environment for fixed income. So therefore, was the Q2 guidance just a blip? And do you still believe that the full year numbers are going to be better than the numbers that James gave? Well, let's start with the overall bank, and, and there we see a good momentum. Um, that is the strategy of Deutsche Bank, that we says we need a more balanced bank. That was exactly what yep. we wanted to achieve in 2019 when we called out the transformation of Deutsche Bank. And we see the results. We have a very strong corporate bank, um, a very nice uh, developing private bank. And therefore, we can confirm our 28 to 29 billion of revenues for this year. Um, we see the momentum. We see a Q2, uh, to be honest, uh, Q2 2023 from a revenue point of view, which is uh, uh, higher than Q2 uh, 2022. So overall, I would say um, this bank is, uh, is faring well. Um, the strategy is paying off. With regard to uh, the investment bank, um, we always said that uh, we had a record year. Um, we had an extraordinary strong year in the FIC business in 2022. I still think that actually in Q1 and Q2 we have done well, but the overall market uh, is, is a bit weaker than yep. in the record year of 2022. But I do believe with some uncertainties, for instance, the debt ceiling issue going away uh, in the yep. US, then with the still complex situation which is in front of us, um, I do believe that um, um, in Q3 and Q4 um, there is momentum in the business on the fixed side. but. For us, as a strategy of Deutsche Bank, it is important that we further balance out the investment bank overall. We have a very strong thick business. We have a very strong DCM business. Yep. What we really wanted to achieve is that also the O&A business is further strengthened. Yep. And hence, we have put a lot of investments into that. So just to, just to wrap this part of the conversation up, it, it is going to be, it, it's going to be an operating environment for the thick business that is likely to be less good than, next year, than last year. Um, Q2 may or may not be a blip. You still see uncertainty in the second half of the year, which could provide opportunity. So, so on balance, the numbers are likely to be slightly better than the 15 to 20% that James guided to. That's, that's what I would say for uh, um, the coming months and weeks. Uh, again, Q2 was also a particular quarter, yep. given the situation also which we had in the US. We can already see also now in June um, on the most recent days that there is, a, um, that there is momentum in the business. So um, I'm, I'm overall actually quite comfortable also with the FIG business. And, and again, Q2 was a particular uh, quarter. I would say that uh, um, the FIG business in Q3 and Q4 
I think there was uh, a slight recovery. You are very good at keeping secrets. <laughs> um, let's talk about the new misacquisition. It, it, for those of us that follow the bank, it caught us all by surprise. I understand you've been working on it for quite some time, but it definitely caught us by surprise. Um, was the offer just too good to refuse? Was the price just too good to refuse? Where did it come from? Where did, where did your decision to go in this direction, the advisory business, come from? Well, I, I, I just said it in, uh, in, in, in my previous answer. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer, and the whole management team of Deutsche Bank is a big believer that we need balanced business, not only for the overall bank. That was the reason why we did the transformation four years ago. Yep. Stable, well-balanced setup with four businesses. In each of those businesses, I again want to be balanced. And we have a very strong FIC and DCM business where we wanted to further invest is in the ONA business. And, you know, we looked at Numis for a long, long time. And, and yes, we kept the secret quite well. And we think it's an optimal um, addition to our business mix and to our offerings in Europe and in particular in the UK. The UK is from a fee market pool. Um, it's uh, uh, the most lucrative uh, European market. Um, we are adding 170 top corporate clients and it fits beautifully to our global house bank concept. Everybody's only thinking about the investment banking offering. And yes, that's obviously something we are very much interested in and it fits to our existing uh, positioning in the UK. But we have a really well-functioning corporate bank. So we have 170 additional clients yep. with Numis now and we can offer our corporate banking products and at the same time we have a private bank where I think we can also do the one or the other thing. So the overall global house bank concept yep. is fitting very well to Numis and therefore we, we looked at it very carefully. I'm very glad about the job Fabrizio and the team have done um, and now we concluded this and now we need to uh, make the final steps, right? And you're listening to Christian Zeving, CEO of Deutsche Bank with Bloomberg Sky Johnson. And coming up, we'll hear from Deutsche Bank CEO Christian Zeving about more acquisitions and whether he's open to that and also where else he sees growth coming from. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and we continue our focus now on investing and also the banking industry with Deutsche Bank because Bloomberg's Guy Johnson had a chance to have a great conversation with Christian Zeving. Zeving is the CEO of the German lender, and he says more acquisitions might be in the works. Let's listen in. I think we are very careful and cautious uh, uh, planning um, team. But of course, we always said that after restructuring and positioning this bank, we are up for growth. And we always said we want to grow in more capital-like products, uh, which is, for instance, the O&A business and yep. the M&A business and the advisory business. But you have also seen that we have done um, senior hires, again, in corporate finance, but also in the wealth management business. Yeah. So we think that we can further balance out the business at some point in time over two, three yep. years, um, you know, we want to also, and we, we need to plan for a situation that NII is at some point in time, again, coming down. We need then additional income streams, and this bank is planning for that and is investing for that right now. And hence, uh, A, I wouldn't tell you about secrets, uh, <laughs> but that there is a clear growth strategy in parts like wealth management, yep. origination and advisory. Yes, we are focusing on that. And with the recent hires, we've seen that. You, you talk about hires in the, on the wealth side, though. Do, do you see the growth there being organic? Do you see it being via 
acquisition of talent rather than acquisition of businesses? Well, it's, it's, it's both, but um, I do believe that uh, we have now such a nice positioning and uh, such a nice structure that we really do believe that if you have a chance to acquire and, and get um, good and great talent in, in all kinds of regions, this is a really good way in step-by-step step growing your business. Claudio De Sanctis has done that uh, very successfully in Asia, yep. in other parts of uh, Southern Europe. So that is a, a first way of growing. If Commerzbank ever came back, would you be interested in that acquisition? They have got a huge deposit base, which in this environment is hugely attractive. Well, we also have a huge uh, deposit sure. base. Uh, but put with, the two together, uh, with, it would be even bigger. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think we have shown also during the recent volatilities in the market how firm and how stable our deposit base is. So that is not a reason uh, uh, to actually think about uh, further enlarging it or acquiring uh, somebody else. I think the full focus of Deutsche Bank is in um, now after successfully delivering the transformation over the last three or four years is now growing uh, into an area where we have a return on equity of uh, larger than 10% in yep. 2025. We are on a good way of achieving that. The first quarter of 2023 has clearly shown the strengths of Deutsche Bank and we can control it by ourselves. We can achieve that by ourselves. And uh, that is our focus. Let's talk about the buyback. If, if another great opportunity came up, would you be prepared to sacrifice the buyback in order to make that acquisition work, in order to provide the balance that you've talked about? Look, I, I, I think banking and managing a bank is, is, is uh, always, in, in each and every aspect, managing the balance. And uh, I do believe that um, we also need to manage the balance between shareholders' expectations and investing into our business, but also always and always having, obviously, a cushion for any regulatory item yep. which may come up. So you always need to balance these three items. We have clearly committed uh, to our shareholders a capital distribution plan until 2025. There is a firm commitment to this. And hence, uh, I'm a big believer that if you make promises to the market, promises to your shareholders who have been very resilient with us, uh, have been very patient with us in those years where Deutsche Bank really had to go through a, a severe yep. transformation. I'm a big believer that we have to then also fulfill the premises. So with regard to the buybacks, we stand to our plan of uh, delivering the 8 billion back to our shareholders, including the dividends. And we are working, uh, we are very, working very constructively um, with the buybacks uh, in the second half of this year in 2023. And I'm very confident that we can deliver on that. And you've been listening to Christian Zeving, CEO of Deutsche Bank, with our Guy Johnson in a special sit-down at Bloomberg's London office. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best, featuring that in-depth discussion with Christian Zeving, CEO of Deutsche Bank, and also featuring Asfane Beschloss. She is founder and CEO of Rock Creek on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and this is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 